reading of God's Word this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is printed on the inserts in your bulletin. 1 Samuel 17, we'll begin in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah, and Ephes Demon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly Afraid. Now David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into my hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shearim as far as Gath and Ekron. Gracious God, we come praising you because you are God who loves us, who loves us even though we have fallen so far short of your glory. You are God who loves us even though we are sinners. And you have made a way of salvation for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing that we need. And even beyond this, oh God, you have blessed us with all temporal blessings. And so we return to you from what you have first given to us, these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings, and we ask that you would use them for your glory in this world, in order that through them your kingdom would be advanced upon this earth, in order that through them the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we come together now before your word to hear you speak, that is our prayer, that we would indeed Hear not the words of a man, but the words of the living God. For we know that when you speak, incredible things happen. By the power of your voice, you call everything that is into being. By the power of your voice, when Jesus walked to this earth, he spoke and the blind received their sight. The lame were made to walk, the deaf to hear. By the power of his voice, he called the dead out of their tombs to life again. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would wake us from slumber, that you would wake us even from death as we hear your voice. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this summer we um, 
We've been doing kind of a survey of some passages in the Old Testament, and we're there in these Old Testament passages to be reminded that really every page of the Bible speaks to us of Jesus, that every page breathes and whispers His name. And this morning, we find ourselves in what is probably one of the most well-known and well-loved stories in the Old Testament, this story of the battle of David and Goliath. And, and from this story that does indeed point us to Jesus, um, I, I want us, I, I think we have something to learn here about courage. You know, when I was in uh, graduate school uh, studying to be a preacher, a pastor, or whatever, I had to take these courses, these counseling courses, uh, a number of them. And some of you may have taken courses like these in the past. I, you know, if you took counseling classes or psychology classes or sociology or something. But in, the, in these types of classes, you know, professors can just dump a lot of information on you, right? Information about different counseling methods and approaches and philosophies and inf- information about all kinds of different anxieties and uh, past and present drama, right, and phobias and emotional um, and mental disorders, depression, despair, on and on we could go, right? And students would, they would sit, we would sit in these classes and we would just, you know, be writing frantically as uh, taking notes as our professor is spewing out all this knowledge and we're trying to figure out how to spell these words and, you know, all, all this kind of stuff and all kinds of definitions um, that seem to go on forever. But important to the curriculum uh, were these opportunities in class for us as students to interact with what are called case studies. Very important to the curriculum that you do this because, you know, it, it was an effort to move from the classroom to real life. You, you know, from the theoretical stuff to the concrete. You, you're asking, you know, all the information is very, very important. You have to have it, right? But the case studies are saying, what do these, you know, these big words and all these definitions, what do they really look like? And what shape do they take in a real life? You know, what what does this look like when the rubber really meets the road kind of stuff? And the point of the case studies was to say, let's see this information, all these definitions, let's see it fleshed out in a real story. The Apostle Paul, in the New Testament, he writes to the Philippians in chapter 1, and he talks about encouragement to speak the word of God courageously and fearlessly. And, and then he talks about hoping for a sufficient courage, right? So that Jesus is exalted in his life. In other places, he tells us like in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, that since we have hope, since we have this hope, we are very bold or courageous. You know, lots of other places where we are encouraged Right, to be bold, to be confident, to be fearless, to be courageous. And that's important encouragement. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that we're looking at this morning together, we get that encouragement in story form. Right? This is what it looks like in a life, in a real life. You know, what does courage or boldness or, or maybe the lack of, what does it really look like when the rubber meets the road? When there is a real challenge, a real threat 
staring us down. You know, the great thing about 1 Samuel chapter 17 is that there's not just one case study given to us. There are actually three case studies in this passage. We see here how King Saul dealt with the threat. We see how Goliath met the danger. And then ultimately how David met the challenge. And and so we're going to look at these three case studies this morning to find out what real courage is. And hopefully by the end, how you can have real courage in your life. So to look at these case studies, I've basically stolen my three main points from a Korean pastor named John Lin. Um, And uh, at least the titles of those points anyway. So I want you to see the faltering courage of, the, of King Saul. I want us to see the unfounded courage of Goliath and finally the unwavering courage of David. So first, we're, we're going to look together at faltering courage. But before we get too far, you've got to get in your mind's eye a picture of this scene because it's pretty dramatic, right? Even as it's written on the page as we read it earlier, you've got this, the army of Israel encamped and assembled on one hill. And then you've got the army of Philistia encamped and assembled on the other hill. Opposite hills facing each other with a valley in between, right? It's the valley of death, right? I mean, it's a natural arena of death that's that's before and in between these two armies camped on opposing hills. I mean, you get a sense of the drama, right? And into this arena is Philistine from Gath, Goliath. He enters and he's described at great length, which we'll talk about in the next point. But in verse four, Goliath is introduced to us like this. He is a champion. Of the Philistines, a champion. Now, this is important because the word champion, it literally means the man in between. You see, Goliath has gone into this valley of death, this arena of death to fight as a legal representative for all of the Philistines. He's the man in between all the Philistines. And the Israelites. And you see, this is why Goliath comes out and he says, send me a man. In verse 9, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. He is calling out for an Israelite champion or representative. Come into this valley and let's settle it right here. In front of this host of these this host of witnesses, right? Really dramatic stuff uh, is playing out here, and there is the challenge for Israel, right? There's the thing to be done, right? The, The challenge and the stakes of that challenge. Send a champion, but what happens? Verse eleven: When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. See, here's this thing to be done. But the king, Saul, Israel's representative, Israel's champion, he shrinks back in fear, which is a great way to describe what's going on here. Because later in verse 22, when David spoke, he said to Saul, let no man's heart fail. 
Right? That is faltering courage. When your heart fails, when it shrinks back from the challenge or the threat, when your heart shrivels and falls back from the thing that has to be done. Think about that as a definition for faltering courage and then try to start connecting the dots back to your life. I mean, what scares you in this life? What are your real nightmares? Even nightmares that you don't tell anybody else about. What anxieties are you constantly trying to manage in your life in big ways and small ways? You know, a lot of us, we're scared of exposure. You know, we're terrified of it. That someone would find out about us all those things that we love to keep hidden and in secret. You know, if they found out, if my secrets became public knowledge, the lust, the greed, the manipulative plays for power over other people, my life would be over. And we're afraid of losing security in this life. And we fear being a failure. And so we work harder and harder and cover up so much compulsively driven by a desire to succeed in work or maybe parenting. You know, if it became clear that I'm the weak link in the office, if my kids' problems really are a result of my parenting, my life would be over. You know, we fear being irrelevant in this life. We fear rejection. We fear losing approval. We fear missing opportunities in this life. We fear a loss of comfort. On and on we could go, right? And over and over again, your heart and mine, it falls back. And fails, and we shrink from the cha- shrink away from the challenge, from doing the thing that needs to be done. I mean, because when standing when standing to the challenge means risking security or exposure or rejection or the loss of comfort or whatever, we can't imagine it. We can't imagine life like that with that at risk, and so we shrink back, and our hearts fail. I almost hesitate to bring up this. Uh, this movie, because probably not many of you saw it, and I'm not recommending it necessarily. But there's this one scene in this movie that illustrates well what I think uh, I want to say to you this morning about faltering courage. The name of this movie is Flight, if some of you may have seen it, um, starring Denzel Washington, and he plays this character named Whip Whitaker. And um, don't worry about the plot, it's not important for the for what we're going to talk about. But what is important is that this character that Denzel plays, Whip, he's an alcoholic. And he knows that he needs to get sober. And for the past nine days, he's managed to stay clean and get sober. And and I hope I do this some justice in describing it. It, It's hard to describe it. I, I even saw an interview uh, of, uh, with the director where they were, all they talked about in this interview was this one 45-second clip because that clip was so dramatic. Um, and, uh, you know, he did the whole movie, and all they want to talk about is 45 seconds. That probably was discouraging. But um, in this, uh, here he is, Whip. He's been sober for nine days, and he finds himself in this hotel room, and then he finds himself in front of the mini bar in the hotel room. And, you know, he opens it up, and all those little miniature bottles of alcohol are staring back at him. And you're watching this thinking, no, don't do it. You know, close the door. But he doesn't. And he kneels down, and he takes one of these bottles. And you're thinking, don't open it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. And he unscrews 
the cap. You're thinking, please put it down, put it down. And finally, he screws the lid back on and he sets the bottle on the counter, right? It's incredibly dramatic. And all of a sudden, the the camera comes in for a close-up view. A one and a half ounce bottle of liquor takes up the entire screen. It's huge. And the music stops. And if you've seen the movie, you know, all of a sudden, it's dead quiet. And whoosh, his hand comes into the scene. And grabs that bottle. I mean, the second you, I mean, finally, you think you can breathe when it's on the counter. It's over. And then he falls and he shrinks back and he fails. I mean, it's done so well. It makes you jump in your seat if you've seen it. I mean, there was the challenge. There was the temptation. There was the threat, the thing to be done. And his heart fell. He he didn't and he couldn't stop it. And your heart and mine falls when you know, you know you shouldn't gossip about that person. But it's so hard when you desperately want to look so good and you fear so much losing approval, when you know you shouldn't spend those numbers for your boss. You know, but the thing you really fear in life is being a failure. When you know the right thing is to give generously to those in need, but you can't imagine giving up your comfort And losing some kind of security in this life. When you know the right thing to do is to love your family, but you're afraid you'll never have another opportunity to move up the ladder of success like this. The gossip, the spin, being generous, those things seem small. They seem inconsequential. seem like inconsequential things. They seem like things that no one will ever know. It's not that big. But the constant daily cowardice in our lives tells you that it's actually huge. It's taking up the entire screen of your life. Because over and over, you can't and you don't stand fast. And neither do I. Our hearts fail. Face to face with our fears, cowardice is written all over our lives every day. Sorry to have to end that point there, but you got to hold on for the good news. Um, Second, we need to look at unfounded courage. Okay, Goliath, you know, he sure does look courageous, and he looks confident and self-assured, right? Doesn't he in this passage? I mean, he's the first one to go into that valley of death, into that, into the battle zone, into that arena. And he taunts the Israelite army and he defies their God. I mean, he sure looks courageous and fearless and confident. But is he really? I mean, parents and teachers will tell little kids, you know, that bullies on the playground, right, they're really deep down just insecure. And as a kid being bullied, that's really hard to see and understand. I mean, you're not going to walk up to that bully and say, you know, your real problem is that you're really insecure. Um, you know, only when you grow up and get a little perspective are you able to see that that's really true. Goliath appears so confident. But why all the armor, Goliath? I mean, did you see it? Verses 4 to 7... This lengthy description of Goliath and all his armor, right? Which is, by the way, incredibly, incredibly unusual in the Hebrew writing. I mean, Hebrew writers never write like this. They hardly ever give physical descriptions. But here, it's played up big time, right? Four verses of it. You know, here's Goliath, his height, which is a little bit debatable, but perhaps as tall as nine feet tall. This huge hulking man, right? 
and a helmet of bronze and a coat of mail and armor on his legs and a javelin and a spear like a weaver's beam, right? And the tip of that spear weighed something like 15 to 30 pounds. And a shield bearer went before him. I love how that, I don't know if I mentioned the name of this pastor where I got the titles for these points, but his name is John Lynn. And he says about, about this, Saul's courage faltered and Goliath tried to manufacture his courage. Right? I mean, he's compensating. You know, I mean, look at what Goliath has. He's this hulking man with brute strength, and he has all the latest advancements in military technology of the day, all that armor and stuff. That's what all the description is telling you. And if you're beginning to get the picture, you see that he is manufacturing his courage. He's chasing away his fears by looking at himself and what he has. He's gritting his teeth at the challenge, this thing that has to be done, going into the valley of death to fight. And he's chasing away and covering over his fears with his unfounded and manufactured self-confidence. You know, I'll never forget this student that I had when I did campus ministry. He was a great kid, and he loved rock climbing. That was his hobby, and he lobbied the university and got them to build a climbing wall. I mean, he was so passionate about it. He ran the thing. He was always talking about it. And I'll never forget him telling me about this hero of his, um, a professional rock climber who did what was called free soloing. And free soloing in the rock climbing world means it's just you and the rock. Um, There are no ropes, no harnesses, no carabiners, nobody, nobody else around. It's just you and this the massive rock face, cliff, mountain, whatever you're climbing, right? I'll never forget him telling me about that, that hero of his. And I will never forget the day he came back and told me that his hero was dead. That his hero, who climbed with no ropes, no carabiners, no harnesses, had fallen some several hundred feet to his death. Today, the person who is considered uh, the greatest free-soloing rock climber in the world is a guy named Alex Honnold. And uh, you can YouTube him. He's got some amazing stuff. But anyway, in a 60 Minutes interview that they did on this guy, they talked about how Alex, at a young age, as he was practicing his rock climbing and getting ready to do free soloing, how he had to learn to control his fears, how he had to learn how to chase away his fears and manufacture his confidence in order to do what he does. I mean, he had to find ways to shut those fears down. In order to do it, you know, and it's it's inspiring stuff. I was inspired to watch it. I didn't want to do it, but uh, it was inspiring. And the problem with it, though, is this less than one percent of all rock climbers do free soloing. And over half of all people who do free soloing, over half of them are dead. (laughs) It's not a good survival rate. Um, And here's what I'm trying to say about unfounded courage. It's out of touch with reality, right? That was Goliath's problem, right? I mean, he's chased away his fear. He's controlled his fear by looking at himself. And he is unaware of the danger in the valley of death. Saul was overwhelmed by his fears and he faltered and fell back. Goliath ignored his fears and left him wide open. And vulnerable. Look, some measure of fear is normal in this life. There are things you need to be afraid of. This world is a broken world. And it's full of pain 
and dangerous, dangerous things. But look at yourself and look, you know, and look to your own strength and your own discipline, right? And you think you can do it. Your manufactured courage, I'm telling you, is unfounded. In the end, I think this is why I like that scene from Flight. This tiny little bottle, one and a half ounces. You can do it. The whole audience is thinking, you can do it. Just put it away. Close the door. But when the camera zooms in, the director of that movie is saying, not with words, but visually, he's saying reality is mortally dangerous. It's huge. It's bigger than you. You know, I know how you think because I'm like you. (laughs) Um, You know, and you think this greed, this sexual sin, this gossip, this spin on the truth, just don't do it. Just don't do it again. (laughs) You know, do the right thing and ignore that fear. More self-esteem, more strength. That's what I need. A better program or discipline or whatever. That's what I need. The problem is the bottle, the cliff, the gossip, the lust, the greed, whatever it is. It's bigger than you. And it's mortally dangerous. And it threatens your life. Come at your fears with unfounded courage. And you are left wide open to the danger. Well, finally, let's look at unwavering courage. All this description of Goliath and his armor, right? Four verses. In contrast, David's description is one verse. Verse 12. David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. That's who he was. And in contrast to Saul, whose courage faltered, David famously said to Goliath in verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, right? All that manufactured courage that he has, ignoring reality. And then David said, but I come to you. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Let me tell you how most of us read this and think about it. And you've even kind of thought this is where this whole passage was going, maybe. We read this and we say, that's it. That's the ticket. You know, if you want to face your fears, you have to have a faith like David. Look at his faith. And it sounds good. It sounds churchy on the surface, right? But really, it's just spiritually unfounded courage. That's you looking at your faith, looking at yourself, looking at what you think you can do and manufacturing your self-confidence. That's absolutely not the lesson the author of this story is trying to get across. You are meant to hear this story of David and Goliath and see your fears and your cowardice. And you're meant to say, I need a champion. I need a champion like David. That's what this passage is about. Because that's the whole story. Goliath isn't fighting for himself. He's a representative for all of Philistia. And David isn't fighting for himself. He's a representative fighting for all of Israel. That's the story. Listen to this. If David wins, even though Saul and all of Israel were cowards, if he wins, they will be treated as if they were courageous and have won. Whatever happens to David is going to happen to Israel. If he loses, they lose. If he wins, they win. Let me put this another way. 
David doesn't go into the arena of death, looking back over his shoulders and, and, and saying, hey, look at me, Israel. You know, follow me, be like me, be courageous like me, face your fears like this. No, he goes in saying, I am going to fight in your place and I'll do everything you should have done. And when I win, you will be the victor. Hebrews 11 is, you know, people call it different things, call it the hall of faith or the chapter of faith in the Bible, right? It's kind of like a memorial to all those saints in the Bible, like David, who's included in, in, that, pass, in that chapter. And listen to Hebrews eleven thirty two. It says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. He is saying, remember heroes like David, small and weak. I mean, you remember the passage that we read? The armor didn't even fit him. He said, I can't wear this. I can't go out there like this, Right. He's saying, remember how God brought salvation through weakness. But here's the thing. The author of Hebrews isn't saying, follow David's example. He's not. Because as soon as the great chapter of faith ends, he writes in chapter 12 this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Remember the, how we started with the drama and the scene, this cloud of witnesses overlooking the valley of death. Right. And, and he, he goes on and he says, you know, everyone's looking on to the battle. And the author of Hebrews goes on. And he says, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And you know what he's saying, right? He is saying, be courageous. Throw off those fears that hinder you. Get rid of that sin that entangles you and trips you up and run the race. Stand fast. Do not let your heart fail, is what he's saying. And you read that and you think, how? You know, how can I do that? Where are we going to get unwavering courage to do that? The author tells you in the very next line. It's not by looking at David as an example. Listen, let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. That's how you get the courage. Because you see, in the Greek, fix, it, it goes like this. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the archegon, and tele, teleotain, I think is how you say it. Um, archegon in Greek means this, the champion, right? The founder, the man in between. And teleotain means the completer, the finisher. You need a champion like David, but you need a champion even greater than David. Because your great enemy and my great enemy is far nastier than even a giant from Gath. Our great enemy is sin and death. And Hebrews is saying, remember David, but fix your eyes on the champion 
who went in your place into the valley of death and slayed your greatest enemy and set you free as if you had been the victor. So still you say, okay, that's good. But, you know, will that really change me? Will that really make me more courageous and give me unwavering courage for tomorrow, for even today? Let me take you back to 1 Samuel 17 real quick. David fought and he conquered Goliath, right, as a representative champion for Israel. And as soon as the battle was over, we read in verse 52 this. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. All of a sudden, victory assured on their behalf and courage came flooding back into their hearts and they rose. All those things you and I fear day in and day out, loss of comfort and security and loss of approval and rejection and humiliation. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't you see that Jesus went through all of that and more for you? And through weakness, he conquered in your place. Why did Jesus endure the cross and scorn its shame? The author of Hebrews told you it was for the joy set before him. And very simply, we do a long thing here, but we're not. Very simply, the joy set before him was you and me. He went through ultimate rejection, ultimate pain, ultimate loss, ultimate humiliation in your place so that he could have you forever. And when that truth gets burned into your heart, you are going to be able to rise with real courage. Because whatever loss, whatever pain, whatever humiliation, whatever rejection you fear and face in this life, now you know it can never be ultimate pain or ultimate loss or ultimate rejection. Because Jesus took the ultimate for you in your place. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the champion and finisher of your faith, and your hearts and mine will rise with courage. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, as we have week in and week out, that every page of your word drives us to see Jesus. We thank you for stories like this of David. And how he points us beyond himself to a greater champion who would come and conquer our ultimate fears of rejection and humiliation and loss. A champion who would come and go into the valley of death for us and come out victorious in our place. Father, we are weak. We are frail. We confess that we are cowards. Help us by your grace, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to see how much we are loved in him, to see that we indeed were the joy set before him that enabled him to endure the cross and scorn its shame. In seeing this, Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with courage day in and day out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.